live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bo's Nose Show, with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Goldsevich, and now, here's Jay. And good evening and welcome to the Bose Nose Show. We're live here from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon. And we've got a great show for you here today. And I just want to remind everybody that they can get in on the show. All they have to do is give us a shout on the phone and uh, we can get you in here. And the number I am just trying to get to here on my screen, which is not cooperating with me as usual, live radio, 646-721-9887. And all you have to do is press 1 to get in on the conversation. Or you can email us at talk at krbnradio.net. Send us a question. You can even email us between shows if you'd like. So we have a guest today on the Bose Nose Show because the topic of marijuana has been going pretty hot and heavy here in Lane County, uh, both on the issue of local taxation and also on some of the issues of time, place, and manner restrictions, and particularly in our rural residential zones. And we have with us today Rob Bovet. And Rob is currently the legal counsel for the Association of Oregon Counties, which um, Lane County is a member of, and I get to participate in their meetings. But Rob also has been an elected district attorney from 2009 to 2014 and also an assistant county counsel for Lincoln County um, from 1992 through 2009. So he's kind of been around uh, county law for quite a while. And in fact, he's actually authored uh, lots of Oregon's drug laws, uh, including some of those about meth labs and uh, really is kind of known as the go-to guy when it comes to particularly new recreational marijuana law and even our uh, medical marijuana laws in the state. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Commissioner. I appreciate it. So let's kind of just do a little bit of brief history maybe for those folks that might be listening outside of Oregon or maybe even outside of Lane County. Oregon first uh, legalized medical marijuana, and then we recently passed Measure 91, which was the recreational marijuana. And then that particular initiative was statutory. So the legislature went in and did almost a complete rewrite uh, under, uh, I guess, what was it, House Bill 3400? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and then subsequent to that, they've thrown a lot of the um, administrative rulemaking over to the Oregon Liquor Control Commission, or is it now the Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Control Commission? Uh, and uh, they've been writing rules, and in fact, um, their temporary rules expired yesterday, and aren't there some new temporary rules that took place today that are supposedly the permanent rules eventually, and all that good stuff. But could you talk a little bit about um, what actually ended up, you know, being legal in Oregon under now House Bill 3400 and the administrative rules for um, folks to buy recreationally and, and uh, you know, how that differs maybe from our medical marijuana. 
Sure. Um, well, I think it's important to kind of um, look at the Medical Marijuana Act and Measure 91 um, as similar in, in one sense. Each of those acts has two parts. Uh, the first part is what I call the personal allowance provisions, and those apply statewide. Uh, they're pure decriminalization under state law, and, and what they do is they provide for cardholders and caregivers and growers on the medical side and then people over 21 on the recreational side to basically have certain amounts of marijuana, marijuana products, and plants um, and be exempt from state criminal laws. Um, and then there's a second part of both acts that I call the regulation and taxation regimes. So on the medical marijuana side, there are certain registered medical marijuana businesses. No taxation because medical marijuana is tax-free. And then on the recreational side, we have certain categories of businesses uh, ranging from growing to retailing that are all licensed and regulated and currently taxed. And I'm happy to talk about the tax scheme, which will be changing here at the end of the year, uh, by the way. Um, yeah. So temporarily they allowed the medical clinics um, to, and I have clinics in air quotes here, um, medical clinics to um, be recreational retailers. And you talked about the taxation tax situation changing, they're currently um, requiring the medical clinics that are selling recreational marijuana to collect, is it 25% tax? That's correct. So uh, medical dispensaries, um, until the end of this year, can sell certain products at retail, and there's a basically a flat 25% retail tax on those products. But when the OLCC licensed shops um, and I suspect many of the medical dispensaries will convert to retail shops because they can then sell both medical and recreational. When those roll out later this year, the flat tax will actually go down to 17% from its current 25%. And then there will also be a local option of 3% on top of that for a total composite of 20%. So, yeah, and that's one of the things I don't think was quite clear in some of the articles um, about Lane County is considering placing a, the 3% uh, local tax on our ballot for November, which is another clarification. Uh, a city or a county can't just say we're going we're gonna to collect that 3% tax. Um, they have to actually place it on the ballot, and it has to be this November. Is that correct? That's correct. It can be on any general election, but that means November of an even-numbered year, and so that means, as a practical matter, this November. So there are a, a lot of cities and quite a number of counties that are planning on putting that local option tax on the ballot for this November. Yeah, so with the state's 17%, how is that going to be distributed and used by the state? Well, um, Measure 91 provided for a, a kind of an interesting formula uh, to distribute that. I suspect that the 2017 legislative session will revisit that. We haven't really messed with the formula. Basically, after the Department of Revenue takes out their costs for collecting the 17% tax, 
and the local tax if they collect it for us, um, then the net gets divvied up into pies. So 40% goes to the common school fund, 25% goes to alcohol and drug treatment and prevention, 15% goes to the Oregon State Police, and then 10% goes to cities and 10% goes to counties for enforcement of Measure 91. And those 10% pieces get divided up based on the number of OLCC licensees you have in your jurisdiction compared to the rest of the state. So that's the Measure 91 scheme for distributing that 17%. And again, I, I suspect there may be some modifications of that, but, but we'll see. So far, there haven't been any distributions, and I don't anticipate any distributions until really the last half of 2017. And that's largely because even though we've uh, been collecting a lot more marijuana tax than we initially thought, uh, OLCC has to pay back all of the money that they've borrowed from the liquor fund to uh, ramp up all of this regulatory structure and infrastructure before they can do any distributions, and they borrowed quite a bit of money to do that. Hmm. Yeah, so yeah, so they basically have to take all their administrative costs off the top, and then then that formula of the 10% coming to the counties only for enforcement may come into play. Right, and it's only for enforcement of Measure 91. So it's 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 pretty confined, and and um, you know how we actually track and trace that's going to be a challenge. I mean, there's a number of challenges with the formula. My concern is that it may not actually push the money um, out to where we need it pushed. Uh, in particular, those areas that really um, need to work on tightening up the black market so we can ensure a vibrant um, legal market here in Oregon. So, again, I, I think the legislature probably is going to revisit all of that uh, and rework the formula in a manner that ensures that we push the money out to where it's needed the most. Yeah, well, that, you know, like anything with the legislature, it's going to be a wait and see, and, and who knows what will happen. And once you get a bill written with that particular pertaining to in it, it who knows what monkey business they might play with it. <laughs> Indeed. We have had the luxury of having a um, joint marijuana committee for the last two legislative sessions, so 10 legislators, uh, five representatives, and five senators, bipartisan, that really focused and drilled down on marijuana policy. And without that committee, I don't think we could have made what is in my humble opinion, probably the best functioning marijuana regulatory system among all the states that have them. Um, there's talk about disbanding that committee next session, and I, I hope they don't do that, because although I think we did the bulk of the work that needed to get done, there's still a lot more to be done. Yeah, I think it's going to be a, a, a learning process in general, and that's something you know we're even facing here in Lane County. Um, you know, one of the things that in this rollout of recreational marijuana is there were some deadlines, um, like this upcoming one for the general election, or we have to wait two years for a next shot at a local tax. Uh, and like we were just talking about, there's going to be such a small amount that, that might dribble down to Lane County from the taxation. Um, that's one of the reasons why we're considering the local tax, but unfortunately, we're only allowed to tax um, 
recreational retail outlets that are located in unincorporated Lane County, which is not very many. Uh, but it's still it's you know hard to to not try and get some sort of revenue in to to make up for the impacts to our our systems in Lane County of recreational marijuana. Um, we also had deadlines relative towards uh, providing any time, place, and manner restrictions on these um, businesses where we wouldn't have to um, grandfather people in after that point if they come in and we decided to make a more onerous restriction. And that kind of um, already has passed us. And that was last January 1 was basically we had to have all time, place, and manner restrictions in place uh, you know, that kind of meet the smell test of not absolute absolute prohibition type restrictions, uh, which I was not in favor of. I've act, I actually support uh, removing prohibition. I'm, I'm a libertarian at heart, and I don't think it ever works. Uh, right. and, and I'll also admit that unlike, you know, a former president, I did inhale in college. Um, so, uh, but the... Uh, you know, we had to hurry up and put those in place. And one of the things we chose to do here in Lane County was to not allow recreational um, commercial activities, you know, beyond the, what you're allowed to do for personal um, in our rural residential zones, because we've had such a history over the last several years, just with the medical marijuana, dealing with neighbor issues between grows and, and production facilities such as uh, concentrate, um, people making concentrates in garages and, and blowing them up, uh, you know, that we really didn't feel like it was a, a consistent use with a residential um, neighborhood. And, and that's caused some stir here in Lane County because apparently there were some folks that went and bought rural residential property before January 1st on you know, the speculation that they would be allowed to do a recreational grow on that property. And they're a little bit upset. <laughs> yeah, so. rural residential's been proved to be a real challenge for a lot of counties when it comes to farming and farm use and including marijuana. Um, and there's such diversity around Oregon as to what's actually in rural residential. So yeah, that's proved to be a real challenge. Um, the one thing I can say is that we did make uh, marijuana a statutory farm crop so in resource lands, exclusive farm use areas, better known as EFU, uh, it's an outright permitted use. But um, yeah, in rural residential, it's just it's proven to be kind of a bit of a quagmire in quite a number of counties, and I'm not surprised to hear that it is for you as well. Yeah, and what's interesting though is you know we only have about 60, 68,000 acres of rural residential, and you know, mind you. Lane County's 2.9 million acres, and you know there is about 1.6 million that's federal land that you can't um, use, utilize. But uh, you know we still got, you know it's allowed in our F1 zone as as a use by right, you know resource, and that's almost 800,000 acres dwarfs the 68,000, and our yeah. exclusive farm zones are another 200,000 acres. So, yeah. you know, there's there's a million acres in Lane County that you don't have to get any sort of county permits to grow and produce marijuana. 
Right. You just have to get we, your state, and state we, permits, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we even made it legal in our in our rural commercial and, and rural industrial zones, at least the oh. retail operations in rural commercial and the uh, the growing in rural industrial, if you know somebody wants to set up uh, indoor indoor grows or something like that on, on some of the our we've got some rural industrial properties that are um, mills that went out of business 30 years ago that could stand right. redevelopment and you know maybe maybe recreational marijuana might be the the, the new thing on some of those properties um, to bring a little bit of employment out in rural rural areas, but yeah the there's considerable folks that think we're being unfair by limiting that small percentage of Lane County, that, that 68,000 acres out of the 2.9 million acres um, to not be allowed to do recreational uh, commercial growth. It doesn't stop anyone. You're, it, I forget what the law says you're allowed to have as personal growth for, for yourself. Is it, aren't you allowed four plants um, on the recreational side, more than that on the medical side, but yeah, four plants um, per household. So, so any, anybody out here in, in Lane County, in fact, anywhere within a city, just about folks can grow their own four plants. Yeah. I, I, whenever anybody says that, I always caution them because I happen to rent an apartment here in Salem, and yeah, I could grow four plants uh, tomorrow, and my good buddy, Walt Beglaw, the Marion County District Attorney, couldn't prosecute me, but I can assure you my landlord, Tony, would evict me. So you have people that are <laughs> renters have to remember that, you know, you, you need to clear this stuff with your landlord before you before you do this. Yeah, that's a great uh you know, a great thing to bring up, you know, because that's one of the things folks, and we've even had this with an employer down here in Lane County um, who at one of the local TV stations fired a, a reporter for testing positive. Uh, you know, I think and, I remember reading about that, yeah. Yeah, and... Yeah, and, and know, people need a, to be aware of, of that, but, that, that nothing, nothing about Measure 91 changed employment law, so employers you know, have to decide, you know, whether to treat it like alcohol, and many, many employers have, which is basically, you know, what you do in your own time is your business, but, you know, don't come to work drunk or stoned, or don't be drunk or stoned uh, at work. But employers can also have strict policies saying, you know, you can't use marijuana at all, and if you test positive for marijuana, then then uh, I can discipline you. And um, so people need to be aware of not just Landlords' policies, but employer policies as well. Yeah, and that, you know, it's an even more interesting case for governments like Lane County and the rest of the counties. And this is one of these impacts of, of legalization that that we haven't quite gotten funding to cover. Um, we're also receiving a fair amount of federal money in Lane County. <laughs> And I imagine just about every government is, including the state government. There's a uh, act on the books that I think dates back pretty far. That's the Federal Drug-Free Workplace Act. And although we've legalized it in the state, we have not legalized it federally. And we have to adhere to that act, which basically says we will maintain a drug-free workplace or your federal money is at risk. Uh, And therefore, we have to have a very strict. Um, 
policy relative to uh, marijuana. Yeah, and there it reminds me there are lots of wrinkles um, based on f- continuing federal prohibition. Uh, a big one for the industry is banking. Um, many simply have to operate in cash, and that's really unfortunate for public safety. But that's driven in large part by federal continuing federal prohibition, uh, and so a lot of our marijuana businesses just um, you know have to handle and deal with large sums of cash, which is just not a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, that's the other issue that I think people don't understand is one of the reasons we felt it wasn't a great thing to have in a rural residential area is they're attractive. I want to, it's not quite an attractive nuisance because that's a, there's a different definition to that, but they basically are attractive to the criminal element because they do know that those businesses are handling large amounts of cash or they're handling the marijuana, which has a high value and, and for the size that you can carry off as a person. Um, so there's the issue of your neighbor's got to grow and the bad guys choose to get to that growth through your, you know, by cutting through your property to get to their back fence or something like that. Um, It's one of those things that concerns folks uh, in those rural residential areas. It's just that kind of impact uh, of, you know, there's this business next door to me that's an all-cash business. Uh, It's still federally illegal. Uh, You know, what what does this do to, um, you know, my property values, my ability to enjoy my property and all that? And I can tell you that uh, my experience in the last two weeks is I've had three constituents contact me about recreational marijuana grows being set up on properties. Some of it, you know, one of it turned out to be EFU and perfectly legal, but the issue there was it was a property that has no residents on it, and they had set up temporary dwellings illegally on the property to house the workers because they were trying to get everything done far enough, all the OLCC requirements for security, et cetera, Mm -hmm. in place so they could be ready for their OLCC inspection to get their license. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So it's led to people kind of short-circuiting your other land use planning rules, um, unfortunately. Yeah. Anything that has the potential to earn the cash flow that that this sort of crop earns uh, tends to make people want to bend some rules now and then. And that's an an unfortunate part of human nature. But we end up, and we only have one zoning enforcement officer for our entire county. And, you know, Lane County's, you know, just 2.9 million acres. And we're adding to her workload with all these calls about marijuana grows and, and they're all different, you know, what the people are complaining about, you know, somebody using a shared. Yeah, I suspect we're in kind of a, um, probably a year or two phase of exploration where we're going to just have kind of a rough ride for a little bit, uh, until the dust settles on everything, not just the laws and the rules, but 
people getting licenses. Um, you know, OLCC plans to, or has already issued quite a number of growers' licenses, and throughout the year they're going to be phasing the issuance of additional licenses, and, and then ultimately in the fall issuing licenses for retail shops. And um, I anticipate um, a number of uh, rocky roads um, until we get all the dust settled. Yeah, no different than Colorado and Washington experienced in their um, legalization process. Seems like we could have learned a little bit more from both of those states as we moved forward, but I think we, you know, in particular, I'm, I'm really concerned about the concentrate processing and the, and the lack of control over that industry. Uh, you know, we had a house yeah, fire... Although I think we're getting um, a good handle on the regulatory side of it. So I think those that will be licensed to be processors, both on the medical side and on the recreational side, will be using processes that will be safe and that will be in areas that aren't residential. So the law and the rules, I think, pretty much wrap around that. I think the issue that we're having with those exploding labs um, people making their own BHO or butane honey oil or butane hash oil is um, one of um, education in part. People don't understand that, um, some people don't understand that pouring butane down a, a tube um, and letting it evaporate out of a dish is really kind of a crazy thing to do when you're asking for a fire or an explosion. But I think one of the things that will, I'm hoping help, because right now in Oregon, um, BHO fires and explosions exceed by far the number of meth labs we have, um, exploded or unexploded. So that's just f a phenomenally tragic thing. But I'm hoping that with um, BHO being able to be purchased at retail, which just started June 2nd, and then fully at retail later this fall, that maybe the incentive to cook your own BHO will diminish and people just won't engage in that crazy practice. Now, maybe I'm just a dreamer, but uh, I'm hoping that that, will, that word will get out and people will just buy BHO rather than making it. Yeah, and, and, it, and when we talk about buying BHO, they're, they're, I don't even think the commercial retail producers are using the, the butane process. They're, they're more likely to be using the CO2. To do and that, in extract. fact, that's that's what we've seen. Yeah, that's what we've seen from most of the applications. They're they're using a really an industrial CO2 process that's uh, cleaner and safer, um, and you know not not messing with the volatile chemicals. Yeah, well, the, the the house fire that was a mile away from my house here, and and basically burn a family out of their house right before Christmas last year. That wasn't. Uh, butane. It was actually isopropyl alcohol that they oh. were using for the solvent, and and some some brainchild thought to use an open flame to do the evaporation part of it. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, yeah, and that's tragic. Uh, the other BHO labs that we've seen explode, they can either be alcohol or they can be butane, uh, but often it's people not having an open flame. It because butane. Um, and uh, certain alcohols don't evaporate up into the air. They kind of settle. They're heavier than air. I mean, all you really have to do is open a refrigerator and have the light go off, and you've got a boom. Um, 
it can be just yeah. as innocuous as that. Yep. Yeah, or just even have a compressor come on in the refrigerator and the spark of the compressor. Exactly. Um, and so those are, we're seeing those, unfortunately, uh, too commonly here in Oregon right now. And my hope is that the consumer demand for BHO and similar concentrate and extract products will be hopefully satisfied when the retail shops fully roll out and people will just have no incentive, hopefully, to, to make their own and expose themselves and their families to that kind of um, unacceptable risk. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it is definitely something that is an unacceptable risk. And uh, I think when we get some commercial producers up and running, hopefully that will get rid of that sort of um, Beavis and Butthead sort of uh, home labs but we'll see. That was one of the concerns about allowing any uh, production in, in residential areas because there is such a danger that the one that had the fire near me was actually a licensed medical provider. It was providing medical concentrates. So. Well, yeah, that kind of uh, uh, registered processor should know better, um, but um, what can you say? Yeah. So that gets to a question I wanted to try and clarify. When it comes to the medical side, what ability does a local jurisdiction like a city or the county have in restricting where those activities happen? Um, it's been made pretty much level um, through the last two legislative sessions. So uh, cities and counties have uh, the ability to uh, put in place reasonable time, place, and manner regulations related to uh, designated medical growers, uh, medical processors, uh, and dispensaries as well. Um, as you noted, some of the land use uh, implications are that if you impose new land use restrictions, you may very well have to grandfather people um, uh, from the past, and, and, and that's just standard land use law. But in terms of the the rest of the reasonable time, place, and manner regulations, there's just plenary authority in um, cities and counties to, to put those those into place with regard to medical businesses and retail businesses. Which, you know, brings up an interesting thing is how do you prove that you've got a vested right in a, say, medical marijuana business that's in a residential zone um, when OHA is, ex you know, Medicals licensed through the Oregon Health Authority, and I think it's staying there, but they have been extremely reluctant to share information about medical licensees with local jurisdictions because they were concerned that it was being used by law enforcement. Yeah, and that's been a kind of a tango that's been going on ever since we um, had medical marijuana businesses, and that's been a real challenge, although I think of recent, as in really the last half a year or so, OHA has kind of changed their approach, I think in large part because so many of their registered um, businesses want to convert, and they need OHA's assistance in showing that, in fact, they have some sort of vested right to be where they're at. Uh, and be grandfathered in from, you know, land use planning rules. So that's a real challenge. But if they actually do the conversion uh, to OLCC, then uh, 
they have to get from us, counties and cities, what's called a land use compatibility statement, a LUX. And so that they really can't be grandfathered into, and there's only one exception I can get into if you'd like, and that's with regard to small growers uh, that can get grandfathered in from the medical side into the retail side. But um, it's, it's proving a challenge for some uh, businesses, but I think that most are finding paths uh, forward to, to do the conversion because, as I mentioned early on, uh, if you're a medical dispensary owner, um, to me, just as a practical matter, it makes sense to convert to an OLCC-licensed retail shop because then you can still sell to all your medical patients tax-free, and then you can also sell the retail products because the early start provisions, which is what we call what we're operating under now, end December 31st. So all these medical dispensaries that are selling retail products have to stop on December 31st unless they convert to an all-CC shop. Wow. gets so complex. So you've been listening to the Bo's Nose Show, and if you want to get in on this conversation with Rob Bovet and talk a little bit about marijuana, just call us at 646-721-9887 and just press 1 if you want to join the conversation. Or you can email us at talk at krbnradio.net. And you can even do that uh, when the show is not live, if you have a comment or something you want to pass on. And, you know, I we got a little comment here, Rob, and I'm, 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 the spelling on it's a little bit off, so I'm not quite sure what the guy was getting at. But he says, Bovet is getting paid, I guess it's getting paid, um, to stir the pot and ride the grief and ignorance. And, it's, and it says better off to buy from a cartel. Um, so, well, I um, I hope not. Um, I hope that we're actually creating a a well-regulated system with a low enough tax rate that um, people are um, more inclined to purchase through the regulated market. And I think we're seeing early signs of um, a lot of success uh, on that front. So. Um, uh, you know, the commenter is an interesting comment, but um, the hope is here that people will not uh, purchase off the black market anymore because they don't need to. Um, and I think yeah. we're seeing some pretty early signs that we're having a great deal of success. If you look at the tax rates um, in Colorado, Washington, and Oregon, we are well below uh, those other two states. And in fact, Washington just dramatically dropped their uh, tax rate, their three-tiered tax rate here earlier this year. And yet they're still almost double uh, in terms of you know what our tax rate's going to be. And then, uh, quite frankly, as as you know, Commissioner uh, Oregon is a high volume marijuana production state because um, there are large portions of our state that are just very well suited to growing the cannabis. And um, so mm-hmm. I don't envision we're going to have the supply problems that Colorado and Washington experienced for a variety of reasons. So um, while I definitely um, respect the, the commenter, I'm, I am cautiously optimistic that we're not actually heading down that path, that I think we're actually heading down a path to a well-regulated system that people will um, utilize. Yeah, and listening, you know, if somebody goes back and listens to the first half of the show, um, uh, you know, this comment actually came in probably prior to the show. They just saw that you were going to be on. 
uh, if, oh. they would, if whoever the commenter is would listen to it, one of the things you mentioned several times was, you know, needing enough enforcement money to keep the black market down so that the recreational system can be successful. And then also, you know, everything we've talked about all, all along is, you know, what's going to benefit the, the system and, and move it ahead. And because I'm one of the counties that pays dues to the Oregon, the Association of Oregon Counties, I can state categorically for the if, the if the folk guys listening that made the comment, that is not why we pay you to stir the pot. And, and, yeah, and no. Stir up, you pay me to try to make things pay. work. Yeah. Yeah. We we pay you to help the counties um, get the best you know uh, legislation possible and 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 legal outcomes that benefit the counties and and in this case you know we just want to have a system that works well and that the uh, revenues from the taxation system flow to the correct places in the system uh, where the actual impacts are it's kind of kind of interesting that the measure 91 chose to give a majority the largest share of tax revenues to schools um, which i think was for more political reasons in trying to get yes votes that's not where the impact of this lies. I mean, we've already talked a little bit about um, some of the public safety impacts, you know, relative to dealing with, you know, the the extraction industry um, until it gets better licensed and all, but also um, what it's doing for us in our nuisance abatement issues and, uh, you know, some of those regulations. And we haven't even gotten into um, some of the issues around addiction treatment and uh, um, prevention that are that really one of the things people don't understand in, in the state of Oregon is the counties act as a board of health. And we have that public health responsibility um, in, in the communities. So all the issues that may come from uh, folks uh, utilizing uh, recreational marijuana we're going to be the agency that has to, to come up with the services to deal with those things. So uh, the majority of the impacts of recreational marijuana kind of fall on counties. And I don't quite see, uh, you know, that the, that the 10% that's supposed to just purely go to law enforcement for enforcement of the rules on, on recreational marijuana to avoid the black market is really a, a small piece of that impact to the counties. I, I would tend to agree, you know, um, um, in, in terms of your statement about, I think, the purposes for why they chose the formula they chose, which is, I think, in part the reason why I am somewhat uh, speculating that um, the legislature will, in, in fact, change the formula to to make it as you say, you know, put the money where it really needs to go. And, um, you know, we have, you know, unfortunately in Oregon, um, significantly underfunded uh, substance abuse treatment and prevention for decades now. And um, while those portions of the distributions might help a bit, even even that 25% going into A&D prevention and treatment isn't going to make up the deficit um, that we have incurred. And as you note, um, counties are one of the primary um, purveyors of uh, treatment services. Uh, we're the ones that are supposed to be coordinating uh, public health services. Um, so we have a lot of um, 
we have a lot of um, roles to play and hats to wear when it comes to marijuana policy. I find it all fascinating uh, because we're engaged in this grand experiment here in Oregon and Colorado and Washington, well, and Alaska as well. And um, maybe we can chart um, maybe a better path than other states or maybe not. Yeah, well, I, we'll see. It, it all—it's one of those things where it's we're gonna—it's gonna be, you know, we're kind of groping around in the dark trying to find our way out of the room, and uh, we'll see how well we we do that without barking our shins on the furniture. Uh, yeah. So I will say I will say this: it has been somewhat advantageous to have Oregon be number three, um, yeah. following Colorado and Washington, because although we didn't learn all the lessons that we probably should have, as you pointed out. We did learn a lot uh, from those two states, and a lot of what got incorporated into our legislation to uh, tune up um, our acts uh, was driven in part by the experiences that uh, Washington and Colorado um, had, had, had done. So that was um, somewhat helpful, I would say. So I'm going to uh, bring Robin, my producer, in here for a second. She had a question about um, taxes and and to to the you know the the guys paying this tax are they going to be able to deduct that tax from their tax returns? Is that what the well, question the was, Robin? Correct. Okay. Well, the answer is yes and no. Um, so we cleaned up the state tax code. So. Um, Business uh, expenses can be deducted from state income taxes uh, here in Oregon in spite of the Internal Revenue Code. But because um, marijuana still remains federally prohibited, those types of business expenses and deductions aren't allowed federally. So um, that's another sticky wicket problem that remains as a result of federal prohibition. Um, I suspect, but I'm maybe I'm just um, naive, that Congress will kind of almost have to do something next year uh, if California legalizes recreational marijuana, which I understand now is certified for their ballot uh, this November. If California actually goes full retail, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure they could, but I don't know how the Congress could logically ignore that. I mean, that then it's just too big. And to have the banking system not serving the industry, to have the tax code not serve the industry, to have all this disparity going on, um, maybe that's enough of uh, an elephant in the room that Congress will actually have to act, but we'll see. Uh, if you don't mind me jumping in here, Jay, uh, just kind of a curiosity question, Rob, is that when a dispensary or a place that sells that pays their taxes, currently, because of the federal laws, they cannot, if I understand correctly, deposit the money direct, directly into their own bank account. Is that correct? Yeah, well, technically. Now, I will tell you that I think our statistics are similar to Colorado in that roughly about half of them manage to find a way to work into the banking system some way. But the problem is when the bank discovers that that business really is a marijuana business and the bank closes the account. 
So I've heard some preliminary estimates from the Department of Revenue who's taking in all of these tax proceeds that roughly about half, if not a little over half, is all in cash. And then the rest is uh, money orders, you know, various other uh, forms or devices or even some commercial banks. But but the banks, um, you know, we had, I think, one bank licensed here in Oregon that was doing business with the marijuana industry, and they just decided it was so difficult and challenging that they got out as well, which is uh, unfortunate. So, you know, dealing with all the cash, and people actually, as I understand it, have to call for and set up an appointment with the Department of Revenue to literally bring in their cash because it's a public safety issue and they don't want a whole lot of people showing up at the counter with a lot of cash. Right. So currently, if you're going to pay your taxes, it has to be by, by cash. It can't be check or anything else. Well, it can be. The Department of Revenue will take anything, but like I say, many, uh, if not most, of the marijuana businesses can't or don't have an account to operate out of because either they haven't set one up or they set one up and their bank discovered what their business really is and closed them down. So that's just an ongoing struggle. I got you. Okay. I was just curious. So that brings another question to mind, Rob, and it is a question that came up uh, in some of the comments uh, on the newspaper story that ran about us um, considering the 3% local tax. How is the state and then ultimately localities that might be collecting a tax on what's a federally illegal product not in violation of some kind of RICO or racketeering statute where we're, we're actually receiving money from an illegal um, transaction? Well, and, and and that's a great question, and you may find this humorous or not, but what you're getting at is money laundering, uh, which, of course, is a federal offense. Um, there is an exception to money laundering, and that's for taxes, including federal taxes. <laughs> so even if you're engaged in um, unlawful distribution of marijuana, technically under the Internal Revenue Code, you're still supposed to pay your taxes on those profits. And the receipt of um, these monies by the state or local government is actually exempted specifically. So uh, to put another way, paying taxes is actually lawful money laundering. Well, in fact, isn't that what they ultimately got Al Capone for on his... um you know, selling uh, bootleg al- alcohol was the fact that he didn't pay taxes on his on his profit. He didn't pay his he didn't pay his taxes. So you got you always got to pay your taxes, and um, for better or for worse, um, the tax collectors are exempt from the money laundering statutes. Well, so I'm there glad you have you explain it. that because I wasn't really able to answer that question very well. I, I knew there was an answer, yeah. but I I just wasn't able to yeah. come up with it off the top of my head how we how we're exempt from from racketeering and money laundering yeah yeah so um again we're you know folks if you want to get in on our conversation here it's six four six seven two one nine eight eight seven and just press one if you want to get in on the conversation and robin will get you into the uh into the conversation here so, um, as you're uh, going through all this um, legalization and helping counties out and stuff, um, there, there's been some 
considerable back and forth between um, the state and and even I guess it's more municipalities about whether they have the right to outright ban some of this. And I, and I think Cave Junction was probably the poster child for that. And it, and it has to deal with um, home rule and, and how that works. And, and home rule has gotten to be a, a pretty big, big question about, you know, when can we do something as, as a municipality or, or a county um, and, and kind of defy the state and all that. Um, Cave Junction was, I think, was that an outright ban of medical marijuana clinics? Well, yes and no. So um, here's the here's the the issue there in that case. And I'll talk at a fifty thousand foot level if I can, because it's still an ongoing case at the Court of Appeals right now. So state law sets out various paths for both regulating time, place, and manner, and for opting out of marijuana businesses. Now, you can't opt out of the decriminalization. The personal allowance stuff is statewide. But you can opt, cities and counties can choose to opt out of um, marijuana businesses, either by specific category or, or all. And the path, uh, at least on the western side of the state, is is you got to put that in front of your voters. So this November, there will be, in addition to uh, lots of various local tax measures on marijuana. There will be opt-in and opt-out measures uh, facing uh, voters in various jurisdictions, particularly jurisdictions that voted uh, no on Measure 91 and the commissioners and or city council want to find out. The Cave Junction case raises a, a, um, a related issue because the city of Cave Junction chose to not take any of those paths um, and put it in front of their voters. They they have, and many cities do have, um, an existing, pre-existing business license ordinance that basically says we won't give a business license to anyone who will be violating local, state, or federal law. So the city of Cave Junction decided that it could not issue a business license to a dispensary because their business license ordinance says we can't do that because you'll be violating federal law. So that led to two cases being filed in Josephine County Circuit Court that are now both at the Oregon Court of Appeals to decide whether cities, in this case, um, but counties theoretically, although none of our members have chosen the, that particular path, whether or not the home rule powers of the city uh, allow it to create additional uh, paths for opt-out or utilize existing or pre-existing paths for opting out of medical marijuana businesses. Um, and um, we'll find out what the Court of Appeals has to, to say about that. Normally, if the state wants to preempt a city or county from enacting a local law like that, they have to say so specifically, because Oregon is a home rule state, which means that uh, we don't ask the question. So the, the normal rule in many states is what's called Dillon's Rule, where cities and counties can't do anything unless the legislature says they can. So you have to ask the question in those states, show me where I can. Here in Oregon, since 1906 and 1958 and 1973, I won't bore you with all that, we ask the reverse question, show me where I can't. And um, the Medical Marijuana Act has never had a preemption um, provision, and Measure 91 had an inconsistency clause. So 
Um, we'll see what the Court of Appeals says, but our opinion is that um, uh, unless the legislature preempts other paths, then cities can chart their own path. In this case, the city of Cape Junction is just choosing to rely on its pre-existing business license ordinance. So I know that was me going off for quite a while, but that's kind of the explanation of how we got to the Court of Appeals on that issue. Very interesting. So you're a former DA. Um, I imagine you still talk to a lot of DAs around around the state, you know, because of you know the the DAs association and the and the county association work together now and then. Do you have any sense for whether crime has gone up or down since we've 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 legalized, um, you know, at least the personal possession? Well, I, I have a couple answers to that. Um, the straightforward answer is no, but but there's a couple of nuances. The first nuance is, is that really marijuana, especially in the western side of the state, but really for the whole state, has been a very low enforcement priority really since 1973. We were the first state to actually decriminalize possession of less than an ounce of marijuana. So it's Prosecuting marijuana offenses has never been a high priority in Oregon, at least really for most of my life. Uh, the exception to that are people that are engaged in really significant trafficking, particularly interstate trafficking. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is we can look to Colorado, and um, we can see that if you exclude um, the robberies of the dispensaries themselves, it appears from the, the data that we now have from Denver and other parts of Colorado that crime does not go up around um, marijuana retail shops and dispensaries. Um, and I don't suspect that will be any different. So I don't think we'll see an increase in crime around dispensaries or retail shops, if you exclude the shop themselves, because right now, unfortunately, because of federal banking laws, those shops are kind of a magnet for robbery because there's so much cash in the system. Interesting. So, yeah, it, it always um, surprises me when I hear some people argue about it's you know it's going to bring crime and all that. Other than the cash aspect, which was you know one of the concerns about having. Um, grows in residential neighborhoods um, that that's I, really uh, yeah and I think in part that's because legalization may not have meant as much in Oregon as maybe in other places and I dare say for Colorado and Washington as well because um, marijuana had been decriminalized at least user amounts for so long and it become I don't know if normalized is the right word but um, certainly, it just was not the big enforcement priority that it has been in other parts of the nation, and, and it's been that way for so long in Oregon that I think it's probably fair to, to say that adults could readily find marijuana even before we legalized it um, in Oregon, and that isn't a wasn't a difficult thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, I had one person comment about us uh, putting a, a, a local tax on ballot that, you know, why do we need more revenue? Because we're saving all this money from not having to do enforcement. <laughs> and I just kind of had to laugh. Yeah. Like, what enforcement have we been doing that we're going to save money from? Um, you know, yeah, you know one I'm, of my is, is DUII um, uh, 
and the difficulty that marijuana presents in DUII. And and that is that's a that's a great point. I think you made two points that probably need to be amplified real quickly. One is is that I know a lot of folks um, uh, believed when they voted for Measure 91 that they were going to save a whole lot of money on enforcement, but that just really isn't the case here in Oregon because we weren't we weren't doing much enforcement to begin with. But DUII, if we follow the trends in Washington and Colorado, we will continue to see an ever increasing percentage of our DUIIs be um, uh, driving while stoned, for lack of a better uh, word. And because there is no per se standard for impairment for uh, marijuana that's science-based, unlike alcohol where we have some science-based standards, we have to use what are called drug recognition experts. We have to go through protocols to determine impairment, and it's quite time-consuming and expensive. So um, local government, including counties and sheriff's officers, are, are going to uh, continue to incur increasing expenses for enforcing DUI laws as a greater percentage of our DUIIs are marijuana-impaired folk. Yeah, and that's it's a real concern. And, and one of the things I don't think people also realize is when you do DUI for marijuana, those more likely go to trial um, because there is no per se standard, and that's pretty costly. So we're getting pretty close to the top of the hour here, Rob. Um, if somebody, you know, and I, I know you can't give legal advice to anyone other than your client, the association. But if somebody just had some general questions uh, about marijuana, maybe that you know, are are you willing to to answer those at all? And and if so, is there a way people can get a hold of you? Oh, you bet. And I know you just. Um, um, I you know I think uh, you just Google <laughs> Association of Oregon Counties and get my email address, and shoot me an email, and that's usually how I correspond with folks. Even though I can't provide legal advice, um, I have a lot of resources, and I'm aware of a lot of other resources on the Internet, and I can just point people to where they can read about it. And they can also just Google Oregon Liquor Control Commission Marijuana Program or OHA Marijuana Program, and there's so much information that both OHA and OLCC have put online. OLC has a special website just for this issue. Um, and I know uh, a lot of seminars are out there to educate business folk that are interested in getting into this new emerging industry. It's, it's a fascinating issue, um, and, it, and it's even interesting when you mentioned people wanting to get into the industry. Uh, you know, are you allowed to uh, get into the, the industry if you're not a resident of Oregon? Um, yes, we uh, uh, the legislature just changed that. So there were some limitations um, initially imposed uh, in terms of you know who could be participating, but now most of those have gone away, um, and the rulemaking has kind of clarified all of that as well. So um, the market is pretty much opened up. I, I, I do issue this one caution. It appears to me, and maybe it's just anecdotal that there are more people that want into the business than maybe the business can support. But maybe that's okay in a, uh, a brand new industry. I suspect that normal, you know, business processes will kind of, pardon the pun, weed out those that aren't going to make it economically. Yeah, great, great advice. Um, Rob, I want to thank you for being on the Bose Nose Show today. Getting ready to wrap it up here for this broadcast, and and 
I'll tell people they can Google the Association of Oregon Counties and look up Rob Bovet, B-O-V-E-T-T, uh, and get your email address. So thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Commissioner. Have a great afternoon. You too, and that's going to be just about it from those notes. Night from downtown Elmira, Oregon.